Welcome to the Gospel for Life. We have four Treasure Valley pastors committed to showing that the gospel is not just for that religious part of your life, but rather it's for all of life. You never graduate from the gospel. I'm Josh Bales, pastor of the Well Church, here with Russell Herman, pastor at Cloverdale United Reformed Church, Phil Moran, pastor at Christ Presbyterian Church, and Jonathan Van Hoogen, pastor at Spring United Reformed Church. Now, if you'd like to find out more about us or catch past broadcasts or get information about our annual conference, you can find us at ReformationVoice.com. We hope you enjoyed this segment from our 2021 Boise Reformation Conference. We had Dr. Robert Godfrey and Dr. Terry Johnson talking about the importance of worship. So please enjoy this segment now. How would you respond to this? It isn't really the authority of Scripture churches struggle with today, but the sufficiency of Scripture. J.I. Packer said that to our class in England in the fall of 1977. And I really didn't understand what he was saying, but he turned out to be prophetic. It is, it's not in the inerrancy of Scripture or the authority of Scripture, it's sufficiency. Is it sufficient for our time? Or does the ancient context in which it was written not anticipate all the changes that have taken place, place that neutralize, uh, because we now are in a different context, that neutralize the authority of Scripture? So I think he was dead, dead right on on that, and I think that that's true. you agree? Uh, up to a point. I, I think there are plenty of churches that deny the authority of Scripture and that, that we always have to be ready and eager to defend the authority of Scripture as a principle. But I, I absolutely agree that uh, in far too many churches who formally assert the authority of Scripture, there's not an operational authority of Scripture. There's not a, a, a profound sense of the relevance of Scripture. That's why we get all these sermons that are sort of pop psychology because the, the scriptures are thought not to provide enough psychology for us. Or enough relevancy. Yeah. Or address the issue of women officers or of homosexuality or... Transgenderism. Any, any I mean, of all of things. these problems. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're just inadequate. So they're not, right. they're not sufficient for the times. Right. And, and therefore, when you, be, when you get very far down that road that the scripture is irrelevant to the really important issues that we're dealing with, such as these ethical issues, then very quickly the scripture becomes irrelevant to everything. And um, I was, was speaking to a friend who was raised in an Orthodox church, and then uh, for a time was in a, an evangelical, very contemporary church, and was lamenting that uh, the children of the family no longer went to church anywhere. And I said, I bet when you were growing up in the Orthodox Church, you had a pr- profound sense of the importance of worship, that it communicated that this worship was important, um, that it was a holy place. And she said, oh, absolutely. And I said, do you think the evangelical worship that was contemporary communicated to your children that what was happening was important? And she, th- she said, I've never really thought about that. And she thought a while and said, no, I don't think it did communicate that was important. And then, of course, she, she made the, the great public confession that needs to be made in America. And she said, we really stopped going to that church when sports became uh, what the kids needed to do on Sunday. 
Forbes is the great idol in America, one of the great idols. Cast down Dagon. There. Yeah, okay. But we can rejoice that on Saturdays, Stanford can beat USC. <laughs> in Just to show I'm, you know, not entirely out of it. I seem to have lost control again. <laughs> this is related not to what Dr. Godfrey just said, um, so we're going back just a little bit, but how do we cultivate in our children a proper understanding of and appreciation for biblical worship? And I think maybe um, behind some of this is it's fun to point the finger maybe at the church, that they're the problem. How much onus should the family take and what positive things can the family do to strengthen a love for and appreciation of worship? I have, the, I have a, a different perspective on that because I have the opposite problem. Um, and it's not really a problem, but it is, it is an issue. And that is my children will have grown up in a church that does what I talk about. Consequently, as they've gone off to college and then moved to other places, they're very discontent everywhere they go. They're discontent because there isn't the substance, there isn't the biblical content, they aren't singing psalms, there's not scripture reading, there's not the prayer, there's not the atmosphere of reverence, and it may be PCA church, but they, they really have struggled to find churches that are doing what they were. And we didn't, you know, we didn't go out of our way to teach them, they just were there and absorbed it. And so they grew up in that environment and that became the norm uh, so they don't, you know, even my, prop, my most prodigal child cannot stand to sing contemporary music. He's the musician of the family too, can't bear it and loves hymns because that's what he grew up with. You can be young and love hymns if that's what you're exposed to. Yeah, I think, um, I, I think parents have to help their children learn, as, as you, parents have to help children learn everything as they develop, so that you have to help them learn how to worship. And, um, you know, I've been relatively good in this conference. I haven't really always said the worst things that I think. Um, so, you know, it's almost over. I can almost get away. So, um, I, I think one of the huge problems is, all right, children's church. If you don't take your children to church, they won't get used to church. Just as if you're not taking them to a good church, they won't get used to good worship. We were part of a church that hardly believed in a nursery at all. Now, they did finally concede that you could put a, kids up to about two in church. But what that meant is my children never remember a time when they didn't go to church. And um, I do remember times sitting in church with my children and not being able to remember anything that happened in the service because all of my energy was devoted to trying to keep them from disturbing everybody within a 10 pew radius. Um, I, I remember the warm summer evening when our minister had prayed 20 minutes and everyone was getting a little restless, and my four-year-old daughter finally said out loud, Amen! <laughs> uh, thankfully, the minister didn't hear, but um, there was some snickering in surrounding pews. Um, 
but you have to learn. I mean, you have to learn to sit still. You have to learn to listen. But the thing, I guess, that most surprised me is how much they learned over time that when I didn't think they were learning anything. So we had the reading of the Ten Commandments every Sunday morning, and when they were very, very little, they could recite the Ten Commandments. So that when my son was about five and a neighbor kid came Sunday afternoon to, to play, my son said, well, where's our other friend that usually play, plays with us? And the little neighbor boy said, uh, oh, he's gone to the store with his mother. And my son said, boy, is he in trouble. And the other little boy, who was a complete pagan, said, uh, why is he in trouble? And my son said, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days thou shalt labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath unto the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work. And he went on with the whole commandment. And the other little boy thought he was speaking a foreign language. But um, I was impressed that he knew the commandment and was applying it appropriately. I'm just thankful your child just said amen when he thought the pastor should be done praying. I did have, when I was preaching once, someone yell out, what's your point? I, I, I think that was one of my elders. <laughs> I, 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 I was asked to do a lecture at a Christian college, and I was really going after the whole idea of generational separation and, it, and it really attacking it pretty vigorously. And a young woman stood up toward the end and visually even said, cried out, what do you want us to do? <laughs> and and the, 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 the fact that college, this was a series of lectures that they sponsored for an anniversary year. And there were about 25 of them. And that one never appeared with the other. Uh, they just erased it from their memory. <laughs> question on just some of the particulars of worship. How do you determine what instruments or music is biblical to use in a worship service? So dealing with instrumentation. I, I dare you. <laughs> I do think, uh, before I take the dare, uh, I do think that it is very useful to recognize that all, not, that all Reformed people do not think alike on worship. We've been largely stressing in this conference appropriately the things we agree on, and we've been largely stressing the ways in which Reformed worship is somewhat different from other approaches to worship, and we haven't focused very much on the very real, can there be a real reality? Francis Schaeffer would have said there was. The real reality that within Reformed circles there are differences of opinion, and um, uh, the reason there are differences of, of opinion is that once you articulate the re regulative principle that we only want to do in worship what the Bible says, uh, we may have different understandings of what the Bible says on a, on a particular point. And so on the matter of musical instruments, historically there have been differences of opinion uh, within reformed circles on the use of musical instruments. Some people say, of course we should use musical instruments because the Psalms talk about musical instruments. And if you want to be biblical, then isn't that biblical warrant for the use of musical instruments? On the other side, you have um, someone like John Calvin, 
who, you know, is a fairly good reformed resource. <laughs> and uh, John Calvin said all the use of the musical instruments in the Psalms were part of the sacrificial system of the temple. And so just as the sacrifices referred to in the Psalms are fulfilled in Christ, so the musical instruments are fulfilled in Christ. And so Calvin had no musical instruments in his churches. And, and he felt very much reinforced in that by the fact that the Orthodox churches had no musical instruments. So it was patristic as well as biblical. In, in Calvin's mind. And if I can help you with a little church history. Please do. <laughs> Everyone is longing for more church history. I, I don't believe the early church for the first thousand years used musical instruments. Correct. And the, the, uh, the reformed churches for at least 250 years didn't use musical instruments. Well, the Presbyterians didn't. The Dutch compromised, compromised earlier. Yeah, okay. Yes. Um, go, go on. Yeah. Um, uh, so then, if, if you think the Bible warrants musical instruments, then you have a question about which musical instruments to use. And uh, there, there are those who want kind of what would be called traditional formal instruments, the piano and the, and the organ. To those people, I always like to quote that great, great Presbyterian Southern theologian, Robert Dabney who was, like Calvin, opposed to all musical instruments, but used to say, well, if you insist on having musical instruments, at least don't use that musical instrument most uniquely adapted to support the Roman Catholic system of worship and theology, namely the organ. <laughs> so, you know, even if you're committed to instruments, you will have some disagreement about which instruments to use. I think what all Reformed people would agree about is if you're going to use instruments, they have to serve the singing of God's people and not overwhelm the singing of God's people. And that's a problem with a lot of contemporary music, that you can't hear the melody or you can't hear the singing. It's all about instruments. And I think all Reformed people would agree that's not appropriate.